you are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Daniel Howitt's interview with the editor for King Richard, Pamela Martin. I got these two great tennis players. All we need is a club. Everything to go from prodigy to pro. Raise your hand, Serena. Venus Williams. What you think? Nobody's taking that bet. Tennis takes expert instruction. It takes families with unlimited financial resources. It's like asking somebody to believe that you got the next two Mozarts in your house. Venus and Serena gonna shake up this world. I got a miles on me. Throw it to the sky. Yeah, that's it. There you go. They're not gonna win them like this. Not with you and me on those raggedy courts. We just got to stick to the plan. We got champions in the other room. You talking about us? Richard, I'm impressed. I think you might just have the next Michael Jordan. Oh, no, brother man. I got me the next two. <laughs> Let me ask you about something. What do you want out of this? I know what your dad wants, but what about you? Well, I want to win the whole ten as many times as anyone's ever won it. You think you can do that? Every American player got good following this path. And we're going to do this a different way. You pulled him out of juniors. Now you pull him out of practice. You do it constantly. I'm trying to look out for my kids. You're looking out for yourself. This is their life. You've got to let them decide. Venus Williams, what you want? Let's show all of those people that I can handle what's coming. You are a champion, and the whole world knows it. She's playing the best player on the planet. She can't beat her. But what if she do? Remember who you are, remember where you came from. I have never been more proud in my whole life. We'll show them how dangerous you are. Let me see your dangerous face. Yeah. That's your dangerous face. Make some dangerous noises. There yeah. you go. That's your dangerous face. That's okay. Don't do that for the people. Pamela. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with me about your work on King Richard. I'm excited to dive in. I actually want to start at the end. The, the ending montage of the real footage of the, the Williams sisters is stunning. You, you leave the film on such a high note. So tell me about crafting that montage and, and how Beyonce's song Be Alive helped you shape it. Yeah. Okay. So that came about actually, the, the idea of that came about during the editorial process. And we were very busy cutting the film. So we actually, the um, the head of marketing at Warner Brothers kind of off-roaded it and gave it to a company called Mark Woolen um, Associates. And they were working on, they're a trailer house, but they do promos and other things. So they gave it to them sort of and said, slap this thing together so we can take it to our test screening, which is coming up very quickly. And we were busy cutting the film. So they did a version of it. And... Uh, 
at some point we, you know, they put their own music on it and all this stuff and it worked, you know, it worked decently. We could see that it had a lot of potential. Um, and then we were going to give it to a professional title house to sort of take it from there. Cause they had just ripped stuff from wherever they could find it, you know? And unfortunately it didn't work out with the title house. We realized what Mark Woolen had done was a lot closer to what we wanted in the first place. So we went back to them and went back and forth on revisions with them. At some point I went into their suite uh, their editorial suite in Santa Monica and like fine tuned a lot of it because I didn't have that material in my machine. And so I went in there and kind of worked with the editor and the producer and, you know, moved some shots around and da da da. Anyway, so we had a version and we, we were about to go to the Telluride Film Festival when we got word that Beyonce, a couple weeks before, Beyonce had seen the trailer on. Serena's website, uh, on Serena's Instagram, I want to say. And she was so excited by it. She said, I want to see the film. So they quickly sent her the film. And she said, I have a song and I'm about to record my album in New York. And I want my song in the movie. So uh, the whole creative team and the team at Warner Brothers all got on a Zoom call and we listened to Beyonce's song with a male vocalist for security. Well, actually, first they sent it to us with a male vocalist for security reasons. And the lyrics had to be changed a bit to get tailored to our film. And that was the intention. And we liked it, but everyone really wanted to hear it with Beyonce. So we got on the Zoom call and heard it two times through with Beyonce's voice um, from New York. And we decided right then and there we had to use it. So we were about to leave for Telluride. So it got very sort of hastily put in there. And so... We went to Telluride, it, it was great, but it just wasn't quite um, sort of featuring the song in the way that would have sort of done it justice uh, in the way that, you know, it, it just wasn't quite there yet. So at that point, I had Mark Willen's company send all the footage to our editorial room, and I went back in to rework it. Also, at the same time, we were having clearance issues so every day we would hear oh you can't have this shot you can't have that shot <laughs> so it was kind of frantic where I was you know talking to our clearance person Jody Trippy, I think her last name is and she would say okay the, I'm going to send you a bin of all the photos that you were allowed to use these are the photos you can use and so I just you know or the footage you can use and so I just started you know replacing stuff and and did it pretty quickly and um you know, changed up the pacing of the title sequence to accommodate the song better and to feature it better. So that, I know that was kind of a long story about a sequence that I only partially cut, but there you go. No, that's great. So uh, just so I'm hearing you clearly, did you tweak the sequence after the Telluride premiere? Yes, yes. We went back in and opened up the film again um, because, you know, like I said, we had to do it so quickly just to make it to Telluride in time that we wanted to feature more of Beyonce's lyrics in the song and the current, the sequence as it was, was not really allowing for that. We were having to dip a lot to play some of that stock, stock footage, original footage of our, you know, our 
Williams family, of the Williams family. So yes, I had to go back in and re-edit it, sort of tailor it better to the song so that it looked like it was always meant to be. Wow. Well, that's incredible. It's it's such an amazing sequence. Uh, but I obviously want to talk to you about the tennis in this film, of course. Uh, this is your second tennis film after Battle of the Sexes. Right, right. But that has a very different energy than King Richard. So in your process, yeah. how did cutting the tennis matches differ between Battle of the Sexes and King Richard? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to say that Battle of the Sexes... Um, you know, that was a match that took place, what was that, in, in the 1970s, right? Um, and tennis at that time was completely different. It was not power tennis. So the pace of tennis then was completely different from what we know as the modern game of tennis, much of which can be attributed to the style of the Williams sisters, I have to say. But um, also, the, another big difference, just not just in terms of the style of playing, which obviously weighs heavily into it, is that Battle of the Sexes was a televised event with Howard Cosell as a sportscaster and and Rosie, who, you know, we used our actress replacing that role. So it was a live televised event in the world. And so it was shot from a very observational um, TV style coverage um, and had sportscasters. Our professional matches, and, you know, we, I, I assume you're talking more about the two professional matches at the end. I mean, there's, you know, there's the junior sequence as well in our film, but we never have sportscasters. None of these were televised events. In fact, when they planned out their shots, and we did some previews, so they did shoot a lot, you know, they shot some test footage to see what angles would work. They really wanted to be down in the action, Robert Ellswood and, and Reynaldo felt they wanted to be down low in the middle of the action. And so they were actually dollying a lot of the time left to right, down and low near the, on the court, really. And um, that's unusual. And I think what that does is it really supports the power tennis because when a ball comes whizzing by, it is whizzing by the camera and it's just got a level of excitement that's completely different from what you see in a televised event. And also something else they did differently um, was that they crossed to the other side of the court. You know, when you watch a televised event, it's only shot from one side. The players switch sides. You will see close-ups of the players themselves before or after points, but you'll never actually cross the net and face the other way because it can be quite disorienting. However, we decided to try that despite what might prove to be difficult. And it actually just made it a lot more exciting and allowed us to jump in time more. And, um, and also just not having sportscasters, I had to cut it more like an action sequence because the sportscasters in a televised event bring a lot of emotion to a scene because they're telling you how to feel the whole time. They, you're, you're experiencing it through their eyes rather than experience it through the eyes of a sportscaster. And, and obviously, Battle of Sexes, you experience it through the characters. And, you know, that's all a huge part of telling that story. But in King Richard, we had to see that 
especially the final match, see it from Richard's perspective, because the pivotal moment is when he decides to go sit courtside. It's established in the film that he cannot sort of bear to sit there and watch it. He's, it's just too nerve-wracking for him. And it's a dramatic moment when he decides to sit down. You know, it's also an eight, and we have to see it through, <clears throat> excuse me, through Venus's perspective, how she, because the baton is being passed to her. This is the origin story. And we also have to see it through the family's perspective and a little bit of the wider, you know, audience. But, um, you know, it was a ch- and also it is the anti-sports movie final sports scene because spoiler alert, you know, she doesn't win. And that is also different from the other tennis film. <laughs> so, uh, and you had to play that in a satisfying way. I, I'm using a lot more I, music and sound is doing a lot more of the heavy lifting and, and just the editing itself than um, the sports cast, you know, because there's a lack of sports casters. Uh, and also you have to get the tone just right in order for the subsequent scenes to play off. You have to feel the pain of it, the, the sorrow, but not wallow in it. You know, it's kind of a complex thing that got worked out over a long period of time. It's probably the scene we worked. It is the scene we worked on the most in the film. Well, it, it paid off. It's a thrilling sequence. Um, well, you mentioned working with Ronaldo. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your partnership, what conversations you had when you were first brought onto the project, conversations around energy pacing, all of that. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I met Ronaldo at first about five. I mean, I, I had met him years before, actually, when I was a creative advisor at the Sundance Lab when he was workshopping Monsters and Men his first feature but he came to me about five months before they went into production showed me the script and we met to talk about it and since I had done a tennis movie before a lot of my questions were about how what the plan was for that because I know that that can be easily be a very difficult thing to do um so we you know we talked about that, and obviously, because we did this previs, we really got to hone in on what what shots were going to work. I think that was really, really important. And the script was in great shape. So the pacing, to me, the pacing, um, you know, when when a script really moves and has a lot of layers to it, and a, and character, you know, characters who are complex and interesting. I don't really need to talk too much about what the pacing might be. I think the movie just tells you what it's supposed to be as you're going through it, as you're editing it. So there wasn't a lot of talk about that, except when, you know, we obviously have kind of a long running time. And there were lots of discussions along the way of, oh, my God, is it too long here? Is it too long there? Where can we take out? And... You know, there were lots of decisions made, um, not just for running time, but just for overall pacing. You know, probably the biggest cuts that happened in terms of taking stuff out of the film happened in the last act of the film. And the most reordering happened in the first act of the film in the very beginning, uh, which is something we talked about as soon as we watched the full cut. We, we saw what the problems were. In the middle of the film, we tried at times removing certain scenes that seemed like they may not be important, but in fact, they often were very important, even because they were doing something subtle that affected the next scene. 
So there's a lot more of sort of um, half scenes taken out and things shortened, but not a lot of lifts in the middle of the film. Um, you know, one discussion that came up during the filming was the fact that the scene with Serena and her dad by the court side that you see in the final act when he says you're going to be the greatest of all time. That scene was originally scripted in a different place. It was shot hastily because they were running out of time and they kind of squeezed it into the stairwell in, a, in an area that, a section that got cut out of the film. And the scene didn't work because it was so hurried and not and didn't feel quite right. So that was one during production where I just said, hey, this one scene is not working. And I really had such high hopes for it in the script. And um, we decided, you know, a lot of discussions between Ray, myself, and the writer, Zach Balin, to figure out where that scene could go. And so we decided to put it in the venue the, where the Oakland venue near the end of the film. And actually where it's sort of, ultimately ended up has something to do with the other scenes we removed as well and it kind of landed in in the sweet spot um we were always talking about character you know would richard do this would venus or serena do this you know because because at times you know you're telling a story about real people and you want to stay really true to that and at times you know for you know for character arc reasons we would spitball an idea like well maybe she should have a talk with her sister and um express some displeasure to her dad about something and luckily we had isha price who's one of the sisters and one of the producers on the film she was on set every day and we got to bounce ideas off her and she was like oh no 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 you know venus would never talk back to my dad ever you know <laughs> things like that to just kind of keep it honest um, was also really important and part of our, you know, everyday discussions. But it was really just getting the nuance of the feeling of everything right. I mean, that's what you do with the director. Does it feel right? And a lot of it is just gut reactions, whether it's mine or Ray's or somebody we show the film to and how to just kind of calibrate it right and get the whole movie, you know, singing as as one thing. Um so I know it's a little bit of a vague answer and kind of a long answer. I apologize. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? 
did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. No, that's great. Uh, that's so good. And, and I'd really love to hear just more about your process. In the past, you described yourself as both right-brained and left-brained, getting to exercise both like the storytelling side yeah. of you while also yeah. this kind of mathematical, like uh, putting mm-hmm. puzzle pieces together. Yeah. So I'd just love to know your process. Where do you typically start on a new project and how do you keep yourself moving forward and challenging yourself? Yeah, well, let's see. When do I start? I usually start uh, about a week or two before production begins. And so as they're shooting, I'm cutting the movie as it comes in. And I do not do string outs, if you know what that is. Um, Lots of editors do this thing called string outs where they line up all the takes of someone saying the first line over and over and over and over and over. And then the next line over and over, I think I would go completely batshit crazy if I did that. So mine is, I, I feel like what I do is, is actually pretty intuitive. I don't belabor where I'm starting a scene. I, I edit very, very quickly. You have to keep pace to camera as best you can because the sets are still dressed. The actors are still there. If they miss something, you need to get it. And so um, I don't belabor where I'm beginning the scene. I watch all my dailies first and I take handwritten notes. And I circle things that I really like, or this is my favorite take, or this is more, um, this is a more, uh, this is a sadder performance, or I like this little moment, whatever. And so I take these handwritten notes. It helps me get to know the footage. And then I also have a reference, your pages I can go back to and look at. And then I just start cutting. Sometimes it's quite obvious to me uh, where to begin a scene because it may be designed in a particular way where I'm like, oh, obviously you would begin the scene with this beautiful dolly shot or whatever it is. Sometimes it's a great transitional piece, like we're talking about a contract and maybe the hand is picking up a contract or something, you know, and I know this is a nice transitional beginning to a scene. But mostly I just pick a spot, a spot that seems semi-logical, and then I just start going on the ride with the scene. So as the scene is playing out, let's say I began in a two-shot, and and now a character says something that's incredibly impactful and hurts the other character, for example. Like, I want to see that character's close-up now, that other character. How did they react to that? And I really go on the ride with the scene as an audience member. That's how I would describe it. Um, and that's how I get through my cuts pretty quickly as well. I also polish them a lot as I go. I do have somewhat of a background as a dialogue editor in my early days. And I think it's extremely important to have polished cuts. Like you don't want to bump anybody over like the fact that the mics are changing over the cut or, you know, little things that I know will look bumpy to someone. I'll go like, that cut was bumpy, but I know it's only bumpy because of the sound. If I just take the time 
and I can do it pretty quickly to just smooth it out enough that you don't notice those things. It really helps the initial pass. And I also start temping music quite early, probably as soon as I sort of feel the need for music in a scene, I start trying things because I, that's a lengthy process. And usually my music editors don't come on till about, you know, week. I'd lucky if they come on at week six or seven of the director's cut. And so we have a lot, we don't have that much time before we have to show it to the studio. And it's really important that you have a feel for the, you know, what your music might sound like someday. And so I start temping music right away to see what the director likes. And I'll give them different choices. Like I felt this, but you know, you won't insult me. I didn't write the music. If you like, if you hate it, fine. I'm, it's okay. I just need to see what you like because I do also ask directors to give me music that they feel if they have a playlist they've been listening to while they're prepping the movie that seems right to them. In this case, I was given a playlist of Richard's music, favorite music, the real Richard Williams' favorite music, um, which has The Gambler on it, so which is in the film, and, which they filmed too, and some other tunes. And, and it just, you know, that was kind of, that was a bit informative, but the score obviously was a completely different beast. And, and I just started trying things a lot. I tried a lot with our own. We knew Chris Bowers was going to compose for us. So I asked him for other scores he had done and also, you know, even Ray's movies that he had scored. And I tempt with some of that material as well. And you kind of get the feel for if you need a um, what size orchestra you're going to need what what can what can the movie hold and where do you need music where you don't not i know i kind of got away from the editing part but it's all it's pretty um i kind of just go right into a rough cut and i hope when i show my i show directors cuts every day as i finish them i just post them so that they really can go through and see what they're getting and get a feel for the movie that is starting to take shape while they're still on set because it will inform, you know, it will inform how they feel about performances and as well as material they feel like they wish, you know, they might still want to get that wasn't even scripted. So uh, it's definitely speed editing at first. And then, it, you know, it, from there you work with your director. It's kind of larger, you know, heavier lifting at first, it's structural stuff or, you know, major problem scenes and things, you know, you know, oh, this needs a lot of work. And then you start digging into individual scenes together. But Ray was there every day, you know, during his director's cut. And he wasn't always sitting, you know, in the edit room. Sometimes he was in his office reading because a lot of the stuff is, you know, we talk a lot and then um, um, I do it and they go away and then they come back and look at the, the changes. And then eventually you're kind of digging in together um, when you're fine tuning. I love uh, how intuitive you seem to be as an editor. It's it's really impressive. Um, <laughs> well, Pamela, thank you so much for chatting with me about King Richard. Uh, congratulations awesome. on the success of this movie. Uh, any any uh, any future projects that you've got coming up that we can look forward to? Well, that you're allowed to talk about. Uh, well, the movie hasn't started yet, but I'm supposed to do Ray's next film, which is a Bob Marley biopic. So I've been uh, I'm I'm kind of working as a helper on a movie but i'm not going to tell you what it is because i'm not i'm i'm the i'm the uh <laughs> i'm a silent partner in this one 
just to help. So I'm just kind of uh, working to fill the time before uh, Bob Marley starts in the summer. Awesome. Well, we are really looking forward to that. So am I. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks a lot, Pamela. I appreciate your time. Okay, take it easy. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel Howitt's interview with the editor for King Richard, Pamela Martin, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. King Richard is up for your consideration in all categories, including Best Editing, Best Lead Actor for Will Smith, and Best Picture of the Year. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.